Hi everyone, this is Kevin Sykes bringing you another story from the American frontier at 1001 Stories from the Old West. We hope you enjoy tonight's story. Welcome back to 1001 Stories from the Old West. This week we're going to return to an old favorite of ours, Andy Adams. We're going to return to his book, Cattle Brands, a collection of western campfire stories. And today we're going to hear two campfire stories. One, a question of possession and the other in the hands of his friends. Enjoy. Without further ado, Andy Adams. A Question of Possession Along in the 80s, there occurred a question of possession in regard to a brand of horses, numbering nearly 200 head. Courts had figured in former matters, but at this time they were not appealed to owing to the circumstances. This incident occurred on leased Indian lands unprovided with civil courts. In a judicial sense, no man's land. At this time, it seemed that might graced the wool sack, while on the other side, Judge Colt cited his authority, only to be reversed by Judge Parker, breechloader, short-barreled, a full-choke ten-bore. The clash of opinions between these two eminent Western authorities was short, determined, and to the point. A man named Gray had settled in one of the northwest counties in Texas, while it was yet the frontier, and by industry and economy of himself and family had established a comfortable home. As a ranchman, he had raised the brand of horses in question. The history of this man is somewhat obscured before his coming to Texas, but it was known and admitted that he was a bankrupt on account of surety debts which he was compelled to pay for friends in his former home in Kentucky. Many a good man had made similar mistakes before him. His neighbors spoke well of him in Texas, and he was looked upon as a good citizen in general. Ten years of privation and hardship in their new home had been met and overcome, and now he could see a ray of hope for the better. The little prosperity which was beginning to dawn upon himself and family met with a sudden shock in the form of an old judgment, which he always contended his attorneys had paid. In some manner, this judgment was revived, transferred to the jurisdiction of his district, and an execution issued against his property. Sheriff Nindy of this county was not as wise as he should have been, when the execution was placed in his hands, he began to look about for property to satisfy the judgment. The exemption laws allowed only a certain number of gentle horses, and as any class of range horses had cash value then, this brand of horses was levied on to satisfy the judgment. The range on which these horses were running was at this time an open one, and the sheriff either relied on his reputation as a bad man or probably did not know any better. The question of possession did not bother him. Still, this stock was as liable to range in one county as another. There is one thing quite evident. The sheriff had overlooked the nature of this man, Gray, for he was no weakling inclined to sit down and cry. It was thought that legal advice caused him to take the step that he did, and it may be admitted with no degree of shame that advice was often given on lines of justice, if not of law, in the Lone Star State. There was a time when the decisions of Judge Lynch in that state had the hearty approval of good men. Anyhow, 
Gray got a few of his friends together, gathered his horses without attracting attention, and, within a day's drive, crossed into the Indian Territory, where he could defy all the sheriffs in Texas. When this cold fact first dawned on Sheriff Nindy, he could hardly control himself. With this brand of horses five or six days ahead of him, he became worried. The effrontery of any man to deny his authority, the authority of a duly elected sheriff, was a reflection on his record. His bondsmen began to inquire into the situation, in case the property could not be recovered. Were they liable as bondsmen? Things looked bad for the sheriff. The local papers in supporting his candidacy for the office had often spoken of him and his chief deputy as human bloodhounds, a terror to evildoers. Their election, they maintained, meant a strict enforcement of the laws and assured the community that a better era would dawn in favor of peace and security of life and property. Sheriff Nindy was resourceful, if anything. He would overtake those horses, overpower the men if necessary, and bring back to his own bailiwick that brand of horse stock. At least that was his plan. Of course, Gray might object, but that would be a secondary matter. Sheriff Nindy would take time to do this. Having made one mistake, he would make another to right it. Gray had a brother living in one of the border towns of Kansas and it was thought he would head for this place. Should he take the horses into the state, all the better, as they could invoke the courts of another state and get other sheriffs to help. Sixty years of experience with an uncharitable world had made Gray distrustful of his fellow man, though he did not wish to be so. So when he reached his brother in Kansas without molestation, he exercised caution enough to leave the herd of horses in the territory. The courts of this neutral strip were federal and located at points in adjoining states, but there was no appeal to them in civil cases. United States Marshals looked after the violators of law against the government. Sheriff Nindy sent his deputy to do the Sherlock Act for him as soon as the horses were located. This the deputy had no trouble in doing as this sized bunch of horses could not be well hid, nor was there any desire on the part of the gray to conceal them. The horses were kept under herd day and night in a nearby pasture. Gray usually herded by day, and two young men, one his son, herded by night. Things went on this way for a month. In the meantime, the deputy had reported to the sheriff, who had come on to personally supervise the undertaking. Gray was on the lookout and was aware of the deputy's presence. All he could do was put an extra man on herd at night, arm his men well, and await results. The deputy secretly engaged seven or eight bad men of the long-haired variety, such as in the early days usually graced the frontier towns with their presence. This brand of human cattle were not the disturbing element on the borderline of civilization that writers of that period depicted, nor the authors of the blood-curdling drama portrayed. The average busy citizen paid little attention to them, considering them more ornamental than useful. But this was about the stripe that was wanted and could be secured for the work in hand. A good big bluff was considered sufficient 
for the end in view. This crowd was mounted, armed to the teeth, and all was ready. Secrecy was enjoined on every one, led by the sheriff and his deputy. They rode out about midnight to the pasture and found the herd and herders. "'What do you fellows want here?' demanded young Gray as Nindy and his posse rode up. "'We want these horses,' answered the sheriff. "'On what authority?' demanded Gray. "'This is sufficient authority for you,' said the sheriff, flashing his six-shooter in young Gray's face. All the healers to the play now jumped their horses forward, holding their six-shooters over their heads, ratcheting the cylinders of the revolvers by cocking and lowering the hammers, as if nothing but a fight would satisfy their demand for gore. "'If you want these horses that bad,' said young Gray, "'I reckon you can get them for the present. But I want to tell you one thing. There are sixty head of horses here, under herd with ours, outside the ninety-six brand. They belong to men in town.' If you take them out of this pasture tonight, they might consider you a horse thief and deal with you accordingly. You know you are doing this by force of arms. You have no more authority here than any other man, except what men and guns give you. Good night, sir. I may see you by daylight. Calling off his men, they let little grass grow under their feet as they rode to town. The young man roused his father and uncle, who in turn went out and asked their friends to come to their assistance. Together with the owners of the 60 head, by daybreak, they had 18 mounted and armed men. The sheriff paid no attention to the advice of young Gray, but when day broke, he saw that he had more horses than he wanted, as there was a brand or two there that he had no claim on, just or unjust, and they must be cut out or trouble would follow. One of the men with Nindy knew of a corral where this work could be done, and to this corral, which was at least 15 miles from the town where the rescue party of Gray had departed at daybreak, they started. The pursuing posse soon took the trail of the horses from where they left the pasture, and as they headed back toward Texas, it was feared it might take a long, hard ride to overtake them. The gait was now increased to the gallop, not fast, probably covering 10 miles an hour, which was considered better time than the herd could make under any circumstances. After an hour's hard riding, it was evident from the trail left that they were not far ahead. The fact that they were carrying off with them horses that were the private property of men in the rescue party did not tend to fortify the sheriff in the good opinion of any of the rescuers. It was now noticed that the herd had left the trail in the direction of a place where there had formerly been a ranch house, the corrals of which were in good repair as they were frequently used for branding purposes. On coming inside of these corrals, Gray's party noticed that some kind of work was being carried on, so they approached it cautiously. The word came back that it was the horses. Gray said to his party, Keep a short distance behind me. I'll open the ball if there's any. To the others of his party, it seemed that the supreme moment in the old man's life had come. Over his determined features, there spread a smile of the deepest satisfaction, as though some great object in life was about to be accomplished. Yet, in that determined look, it was evident that he would rather be shot down like a dog than yield to what he felt was tyranny and the denial of his rights. 
When his party came within a quarter mile of the corrals, it was noticed that Nindy and his deputies ceased their work, mounted their horses, and rode out into the open, the sheriff in the lead, and halted to await the meeting. Gray rode up to within a hundred feet of Nindy's posse, and, dismounting, handed the reins of his bridle to his son. He advanced with a steady, even stride, a double-barrel shotgun held as though he expected to flush a partridge. At this crucial juncture, his party following him up, it seemed that reputations as bad men were due to get action, or suffer a discount at the hands of heretofore peaceable men. Every man in either party had his arms where they could be instantly available should the occasion demand it. When Gray came within easy hailing distance, his challenge was clear and audible to everyone. What in the hell are you doing with my horses? I've got to have these horses, sir, answered Sheriff Nindy. Do you realize what it will take to get them? asked Gray as he brought his gun, both barrels at full cock to his shoulder. Bat an eye or crook your little finger if you dare, and I'll send your soul glimmering into eternity, if my own goes to hell for it. There was something in the old man's voice that conveyed the impression that these were not idle words. To heed them was the better way, if human life had any value. Well, Mr. Gray, said the sheriff, Put down your gun and take your horses. This has been a bad piece of business for us. Take your horses and go, sir. My bondsmen can pay that judgment if they have to. Gray's son rode around during the conversation, opened the gate, and turned out the horses. One or two men helped, and the herd was soon on its way to the pasture. As the men of his party turned to follow Gray, who had remounted, he presented a pitiful sight. His still-determined features, relaxed from the high tension to which he had been nerved, were blanched to the color of his hair and beard. It was like a drowning man with the strength of two, when rescued and brought to safely to land, fainting through sheer weakness. A reprieve from death itself, or the blood of his fellow man upon his hands, had been met and passed. It was some little time before he spoke. Then he said, I reckon it was best, the way things turned out, for I would hate to kill any man. But I would gladly die rather than suffer an injustice or quietly submit to what I felt was a wrong against me. It was some moments before the party became communicative, as they all had a respect for the old man's feelings. Sheriff Nindy was on the uneasy seat, for he would not return to the state, though his posse returned somewhat crestfallen. It may be added that the sheriff's bondsman, upon an examination into the facts in the case, concluded to stand a suit on the developments of some facts which their examination had uncovered in the original proceedings, and the matter was dropped, rather than fight it through in open court. That is to say, Mr. Gray's attorneys had paid the earlier judgment. And that concludes a question of possession. And now a word from our sponsors. And now we'll continue with Andy Adams in the hands of his friends. 
There was a painting at the World's Fair at Chicago named The Reply, in which the lines of two contending armies were distinctly outlined. One of these armies had demanded the surrender of the other. The Reply was being written by a little fellow, surrounded by grim veterans of war. He was not even a soldier, but in this little fellow's countenance shone a supreme contempt for the enemy's demand. His patriotism beamed out as plainly as did that of the officer dictating to him. Physically, he was debarred from being a soldier. Still, there was a place where he could be useful. So with little Jack Martin. He was a cripple and could not ride, but he could cook. If the way to rule men is through their stomach, Jack was a general who never knew defeat. The J&H camp where he presided over the kitchen was noted for good living. Jack's domestic tastes followed him wherever he went, so that he surrounded himself at this camp with chickens and a few cows for milk. During the spring months, when the boys were away on the various roundups, he planted and raised a fine garden. Men returning from a hard month's work would brace themselves against fried chicken, eggs, milk, and fresh vegetables. After drinking alkali water for a month and living out of tin cans, who wouldn't love Jack? In addition to his garden, he always raised a fine patch of watermelons. This camp was an oasis in the desert. Every man was Jack's friend, and an enemy was an unknown personage. The peculiarity about him, aside from his deformity, was his ability to act so much better than he could talk. In fact, he could barely express his simplest wants in words. Cripples are usually cross, irritable, and unpleasant companions. Jack was the reverse. His best qualities shone their brightest when there were a dozen men around to cook for. When they ate heartily, he felt he was useful. If a boy was sick, Jack could make a broth or fix a cup of beef tea like a mother or sister. When he went out with the wagon during beef shipping season, a pot of coffee simmered over the fire all night for the boys on night herd. Men going or returning on guard liked to eat. The bread and meat left over from the meals of the day were always left convenient for the boys. It was the many little things that he thought of which made him such a general favorite with everyone. Little Jack was middle-aged when the proclamation of the president opening the original Oklahoma was issued. This land was to be thrown open in April. It was not a cow country then, though it had been once. There was a warning in this that the strip would be next. The dominion of the cowman was giving way to the homesteader. One day, Jack found opportunity to take Miller, our foreman, into his confidence. They had been together five or six years. Jack had coveted a spot in the section which was to be thrown open, and he asked the foreman to help him get it. He had been all over the country when it was part of the range and had picked out a spot on Big Turkey Creek, ten miles south of the strip line. It gradually passed from one to another of us what Jack wanted. At first, we felt blue about it, but Miller, who could see farther than the rest of us, dispelled the gloom by announcing at dinner, Jack is going to take a claim if this outfit has a horse in it and a man to ride him. It's only a question of a year or two at the farthest until the rest of us will be guiding a white mule between two cornrows and glad of the chance. If Jack goes now, he'll just have that many years the head start of the rest of us. We nerved ourselves and tried to appear jolly after this talk of the foreman. We entered into quite a discussion as to which horse would be the best to make the ride with. The ranch had several specially good saddle animals. In chasing gray wolves in the winter, those qualities of endurance 
which long races developed in hunting these enemies of the cattle, pointed out a certain coyote-colored horse, whose color marks and dead tree brand indicated that he was of Spanish extraction. Intelligently ridden with a light rider, he was first choice on which to make this run. That was finally agreed by all. There was no trouble selecting the rider for this horse with the zebra marks. The lightest weight was Billy Edwards. This qualification gave him the preference over us all. Jack described the spot he desired to claim by an old branding pen, which had been built there when it had been part of the range. Billy had ironed up many a calf in those same pens himself. Well, Jack, said Billy, if this outfit don't put you on the best quarter section around that old corral, you know that they throwed off on you. It was two weeks before the opening day. The coyote horse was given special care from this time forward. He feasted on corn while the others had to be content with grass. In spite of all the bravado that was being thrown into these preparations, there was noticeable a deep undercurrent of regret. Jack was going from us. Everyone wanted him to go. Still, these dissolving ties moved the simple men to acts of boyish kindness. Each tried to outdo the others in the matter of a parting present to Jack. He could have robbed us then. It was as bad as a funeral. Once before we felt similar once before we felt similarly when one of the boys died at camp. It was like an only sister leaving the family circle. Miller seemed to enjoy the discomfiture of the rest of us. This creedless old Christian had fine strata in his makeup. He and Jack planned continually for the future. In fact, they didn't live in the present like the rest of us. Two days before the opening, we loaded up a wagon with Jack's effects. Every man but the newly installed cook went along. It was too early in the spring for work to commence. We all dubbed Jack a boomer from this time forward. The horse so much depended on what was led behind the wagon. On the border, we found a motley crowd of people. Soldiers had gathered them into camps along the line to prevent Sooners from entering before the appointed time. We stopped in a camp directly north of the claim our little boomer wanted. One thing was certain. It would take a better horse than ours to win the claim away from us. No Sooner could take it. That and other things were what all of us were going along for. The next day when the word was given that made the land public domain, Billy was in line on the coyote. He held his place out front with the best of them. After the first few miles, the others followed the valley of Turkey Creek, but he maintained his course like a wild fowl, skirting the timber which coveted the first range of hills back from the creek. Jack followed with the wagon, while the rest of us rode leisurely. After the first mile or so, we saw Edwards bear straight ahead from the others. We argued that a sooner could only beat us for that claim. If he tried to outhold us, it would be six to one as we noticed the leaders closely when we slacked up. By not following the valley, Billy would cut off two miles. Any man who could ride 12 miles to the Coyote's 10 with Billy Edwards in the saddle was welcome to the earth. That was the way we felt. We rode together, expecting to make the claim three quarters of an hour behind our man. When near enough to sight it, we could see Billy and another horseman apparently protesting with one another. 
A loud yell from one of us attracted our man's attention. He mounted his horse and rode out and met us. Well, fellas, it's the expected that's happened this time. Yes, there's a sooner on it, and he puts up a fine bluff of having ridden from the line, but he's a liar by the watch, for there isn't a wet hair on his horse, while the sweat was dripping from the fetlocks of this one. If you're satisfied that he's a sooner, said Miller, he has to go. Well, he's a lion sooner, said Edwards. We reined in our horses and held a short parley. After a brief discussion of the situation, Miller said to us, You boys go down to him. Don't hurt him or get hurt, but make out that you're going to hang him. Put plenty of reality into it, and I'll come in in time to save him and give him a chance to run for his life. We all rode down toward him. Miller, bearing off towards the right of the old corral, rode out over the claim, noticing the rich soil thrown up by the molehills. When we came to our sooner... All of us dismounted. Edwards confronted him and said, Do you contest my right to this claim? I certainly do, was the reply. Well, you won't do so long, said Edwards. Quick as a flash, Mouse prodded the cold steel muzzle of a six-shooter against his ear. As the sooner turned his head and looked into Mouse's stern countenance, One of the boys relieved him of an ugly gun and knife that dangled from his belt. Get on your horse, said Mouse, emphasizing his demand with an oath, while the muzzle of his forty-five in his ear made the order undebatable. Edwards took the horse by the bits and started for a large blackjack tree which stood nearby. Reaching it, Edwards said, Better use Coon's rope. It's manila and stronger. Can any of you boys tie a hangman's knot? He inquired when the rope was handed to him. Yes, let me, replied several. Which limb will be best? inquired Mouse. Take this horse by the bits, said Edwards to one of the boys, till I look. He coiled the rope sailor fashion and made an ineffectual attempt to throw it over a large limb which hung out like a yard arm. But the small branches intervening defeated his throw. While he was coiling the rope to make a second throw, someone said, Um, maybe so he'd like to pray. What? Him pray? said Edwards. Any prayer that he might offer couldn't get a hearing amongst men, let alone above, where liars are forbidden. Try that other limb, said Coon to Edwards. There's not so much brush in the way. We want to get this job done sometime today. As Edwards made a successful throw, he said, Bring that horse directly underneath. At this moment, Miller dashed up and demanded, What in the hell are you trying to do? This sheep thief of a sooner contests my right to this claim, snapped Edwards, and he has just played his last cards on this earth. Lead that horse under here. Just one moment, said Miller. I think I know this man. I think he worked for me once in New Mexico. The sooner looked at Miller appealingly, his face blanched to whiteness. Miller took the bridle reins out of the hands of the boy who was holding the horse, and, whispering something to the sooner, said to us, Are you all ready? Just waiting on you, said Edwards. The sooner gathered up the reins, 
Miller turned the horse halfway around as though he was going to lead him under the tree and gave him a slap in the flank with his hand, and the sooner, throwing the rowels of his spurs into the horse, shot out from us like a startled deer. We called to him to halt, as a half-dozen six-shooters encouraged him to go by opening a fusillade on the fleeing horseman, who only hit the high places while going. Nor did we let up fogging him until we emptied our guns and he entered the timber. There was plenty of zeal in this latter part, as the lead must have zipped and cried near enough to give it reality. Our object was to shoot as near as possible without hitting. Other horsemen put in an appearance as we were unsaddling and preparing to camp, for we had come to stay a week if necessary. In about an hour, Jack joined us, speechless as usual, his face wreathed in smiles. The first step toward a home he could call his own had been taken. We told him about the trouble we had with the Sooner, a story which he seemed to question until Miller confirmed it. We put up a tent among the blackjacks as the nights were cool and were soon at peace with all the world. At supper that evening, Edward said, When the old settlers hold their reunions in the next generation, they'll say, Thirty years ago, Uncle Jack Martin settled over there on Big Turkey and point him out to their children as one of the pioneer fathers. No one found trouble in getting to sleep that night. And the next day, arts long forgotten by most of us were revived. Some plowed up the old branding pen for a garden. Others cut logs for a cabin. Every one did two ordinary days' work. The getting of the logs together was the hardest. We sawed and chopped and hewed for dear life. The first few days, Jack and one of the boys planted a fine big garden. On the fourth day, we gave up the tent as the smoke curled upward from our own chimney in the way that it does in old-time stories. The last night we spent with Jack was one long to be remembered. A bright fire snapped and crackled in the ample fireplace. Everyone told stories. Several of the boys could sing the Lone Star Cow Trail, while Sam Bass and Bonnie Black Bess were given with a whim. The next morning we were to leave for camp. One of the boys who would work for us that summer, but whose name was not on the payroll until the roundup, stayed with Jack. We all went home feeling fine and leaving Jack happy as a bird in his new possession. As we were saddling up to leave, Miller said to Jack, Now, if you're any good... You'll delude some girl to keep house for you twixt now and fall. Remember what the holy book says about it being hard luck for a man to be alone. You notice all your boomer neighbors have wives. That's a hint to you to do likewise. We were on the point of mounting when the coyote horse began to act up in great shape. Someone said to Edwards, Loosen your cinches. Oh, it's nothing but the corn he's been eating in a few days' rest, said Miller. He's just running a little bluff on Billy. As Edwards went to put his foot in the stirrup a second time, the coyote reared like a circus horse. Now look here, Colty, said Billy, speaking to the horse. My daddy rode with old John Morgan, the Confederate cavalry raider. And he'd be ashamed of any boy he ever raised that couldn't ride a bad horse like you. You're plumb foolish to act this way. Do you think I'll walk and lead you home? He led him out a few rods from the others and mounted him without any trouble. He just wants to show Jack how it affects a cow horse to graze a few days on a boomer's claim, that's all, said Edwards, and he joined us. 
Now, Jack, said Miller as a final parting, if you want a cow, I'll send one down. Or if you need anything, just let us know and we'll come a-running. It's a bad example you've set us to go booming this way, but we want to make a howling success out of you so we can visit you next winter. And mind what I told you about getting married, he called back as he rode away. We reached camp by late noon. Miller kept up his talk about what a fine move Jack had made, said that we must get him a stray beef for his next winter's meat, kept figuring constantly what else he could do for Jack. You come around in a few years and you'll find him as cozy as a coon and better off than any of us, said Miller, when we were talking about his farming. I've slept under wet blankets with him and watched him kindle a fire in the snow too often to know what he's made of. There's good stuff in that little rascal. About the ranch, it seemed lonesome without Jack. It was like coming home from school when we were kids and finding mother gone to the neighbors. We always liked to find her at home. We busied ourselves repairing fences, putting in floodgates on the river, and doing anything to keep away from camp. Miller himself went back to see Jack within ten days, remaining a week. None of us stayed at the home ranch any more than we could help. We visited other camps on hatched excuses until the home roundups began. When anyone else asked us about Jack, we would blow about what a fine claim he had and what a boost we had given him. When we buckled down to the summer's work, the gloom gradually left us. There were men to be sent on the eastern, western, and middle divisions of the great roundup of the Strip. Two men were sent south into Cheyenne country to catch anything that had winter drifted. Our range lay in the middle division. Miller and one man looked after it on the general roundup. It was a busy year with us. Our range was full stocked and by early fall was rich with fat cattle. We lived with the wagon after the shipping season commenced. Then we missed Jack. Although the new cook did the best he knew how, train after train went out of our pasture, yet the cattle were never missed. We never went to camp now. Only the wagon went in after supplies, though we often came within sight of the stabling and corrals in our work. One day late in the season we were getting out a train load of cattle when who should come toddling along on a plow nag but Jack himself. Busy as we were, he held quite a levy, though he didn't give down much news nor have anything to say about himself nor the crops. That night at camp, while the rest of us were arranging the guards for the night, Miller and Jack prowled off in an opposite direction from the beef herd, possibly a half a mile, and a foot, too. We could all see that something was working. Some trouble was bothering Jack, and he had come to a friend in need. So we thought. They did not come back to camp until the moon was up and the second guard had gone out to relieve the first. When they came back, not a word was spoken. The next morning, as Jack was leaving us to return to his claim, we overheard him say to Miller, I'll write you. As he faded from our sight, Miller smiled to himself as though he was tickled about something. Finally, Billy Edwards brought things to a head and asked bluntly, What's up with Jack? We want to know. Oh, it's too good, said Miller. If that little game-legged rooster hasn't gone and deluded some girl back in the state into marrying him, I'm a horse thief. You fellas are all in the play, too. Came here special to see when we could best get away. Wants every one of us to come. 
He's built another end to his house, double log style, floored both rooms in the middle. Says he'll have two fiddlers and promises us the hog-killingest time of our lives. I've accepted the invitation on behalf of the J&Hs without consulting anyone. But supposing we're busy when it takes place, said Mouse, then what? But we won't be, answered Miller. It isn't every day that we have a chance at a wedding in our little family, and when we get the word, this outfit quits, then and there. Ordinary callings in life, like cattle matters, must go to the rear until important things are attended to. Every man is expected to don his best togs and dance to the center on the word. If it takes a week to turn the trick properly, good enough. Jack and his bride must have a blowout right. This outfit must do themselves proud. It'll be our night to howl, and every man will be a woolly wolf. We loaded the beeves out the next day, going back after two trains of turkey track cattle. While we were getting these out, Miller cut out two strays and a cow or two, and sent them to the horse pasture at the home camp. It was getting late in the fall, and we figured that a few more shipments would end it. Miller told the owners to load out what they wanted while the weather was fit, as our saddle horses were getting worn out fast. As we were loading out that last shipment of mixed cattle of our own, the letter came to Miller. Jack would return with his bride on a date only two days off, and the festivities were set for one day later. We pulled into headquarters that night for the first time in six weeks and turned everything loose. The next morning we overhauled our Sunday bests and worried about trying to pick out something for a wedding present. Miller gave the happy pair a little flower pot cow, which he had rustled in the Cheyenne country on the roundup a few years before. Edwards presented him with a log chain that a bone picker had lost in our pasture. Mouse gave Jack a four-tined fork, which the hay outfit had forgotten when they left. Coon Floyd's compliments went with five cowbells, which we always thought he rustled from a boomer's wagon that broke down over on the Reno Trail. It bothered some of us to rustle something for a present, for you know we couldn't buy anything. We managed to get some deer antlers, a gray wolf skin for the bride's tootsies, and several colored sheepskins which we had bought from a Mexican horse herd going up the trail that spring. We killed a nice fat little beef the evening before we started, hanging it out overnight to harden. None of the boys knew the brand. In fact, it's bad taste to remember the brand on anything you've beefed. No one troubles himself to notice it carefully. That night, a messenger brought a letter to Miller, ordering him to ship out the remnant of Diamond Trail cattle as soon as possible. They belonged to a Northwest Texas outfit, and we were maturing them. The messenger stayed all night, and in the morning asked, Shall I order cars for you? No, I have a few other things to attend to first, answered Miller. We took the wagon with us to carry our bedding and the other plunder, driving along with us a cow and a calf of Jack's, the little flower pot cow and a beef. Our outfit reached Jack's house by the middle of the afternoon. The first thing was to be introduced to the bride. Jack did the honors himself, presenting each one of us and seemed just as proud as a little boy with new boots. Then we were given introductions to several good-looking neighbor girls. We began to feel our own inferiority. While we were hanging up the quarters of beef on some pegs on the north side of the cabin, Edwards said, 
whispering, Jack must have pictured this claim mighty highfalutin to that gal, for she's a way up good looker. Another thing, watch me build to the one inside with the black eyes. I claimed her first, remember. As soon as we get this beef hung up, I'm going to go in and sidle up to her. We won't differ with you on that point, remarked Mouse. But if she takes any special shine to a runt like you when there's boys like the rest of us standing around, all I've got to say is her taste must be a heap sight sorry and depraved. I expect to dance with the bride in the headset a world or two myself. If I'd only thought, chimed in Coon, I'd have sent up to the state and got me a white shirt and standing collar and a red necktie. You galoots outhold me on togs. But where I was raised, back down in Palo Pinto County, Texas, I was some pumpkins as a ladies' man myself, you hear me? Oh, you look all right, said Edwards. You would look all right with only a cotton string around your neck. After tending to our horses, we all went into the house. There sat Miller, talking to the bride just as if he'd known her always, with Jack standing with his back to the fire, grinning like a cat eating paste. The neighbor girls fell to getting supper, and our cook turned to and helped. We managed to get fairly well acquainted with the company by the time the meal was over. The fiddlers came early, in fact, dined with us. Jack said if there were enough girls, we could run three sets, and he thought there would be, as he had asked every one, both sides of the creek, for five miles. The beds were taken down and stowed away, as there would be no use for them that night. The company came early. Most of the young fellows brought their best girls seated behind them on saddle horses. This manner gave the girl a chance to show her trustful, clinging nature. A horse that would carry double was a prize animal. In settling up a new country, primitive methods crop out as a matter of necessity. Ben Thorne, an old-timer in the strip, called off. While the company was gathering, the fiddlers began to tune up, which sent a thrill through us. When Ben gave the word, Secure your partners for the first quadrille, Miller led out the bride to the first position in the best room, Jack's short legs barring him as a participant. This was the signal for the rest of us, and we fell in promptly. The fiddles struck up, hounds in the woods. The prompter's voice rang out, Honors to your partner, and the dance was on. Edwards close-herded the black-eyed girl till supper time. Not a one of us got a dance with her. Mouse admitted the next day as we rode home that he squeezed her hand several times in the grand right and left just to show her that she had other admirers, that she needn't throw herself away on any one fellow. But it was a no-go. After supper, Billy corralled her in a corner, she seeming willing, and stuck to her until her brother took her home nigh daylight. Jack got us boys partners for every dance. He proved himself clean strain that night, the whitest little engine on the reservation. We knocked off dancing about midnight and had supper. Good coffee with no end of way up fine chuck. We ate as we danced heartily. Supper over, the dance went on full blast. About two o'clock in the morning, the wire edge was well worn off the revelers. And they showed signs of weariness. Miller, noticing it, ordered the Indian war dance as given by the Cheyennes. 
That aroused everyone and filled the sets instantly. The fiddlers caught the inspiration and struck into Sift the Meal and Save the Bran. In every grand right and left, we kayed as we witnessed low in the dance on every festive occasion. At the end of every change, we gave a war whoop, some of the girls joining in, that would have put to shame any son of the Cheyennes. At daybreak, when the dance ended and the guests departed, though we had brought our blankets with us, no one thought of sleeping. Our cook and one of the girls got breakfast. The bride offered to help, but we wouldn't let her turn her hand. At breakfast, we discussed the incidents of the night previous, and we all felt that we had done the occasion justice. Well, there we go. A couple Andy Adams campfire stories. It doesn't get any more Western than that. I want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas and a Happy Holidays. Share the 1001 Stories Network with your families. That's about the best Christmas gift you can give them. And it doesn't cost much. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories from the Old West. If you enjoyed this episode, please do send us a review. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, speaking on behalf of the 1001 Stories Network. Take care, and we'll be back soon with a brand new story.